And welcome. This is Dharma Punks, New York. Just getting ourselves sorted. So, if you'd like to support the work of your local friendly Buddhist pastor, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC. PayPal button is on the Dharma Punks NYC website and podcast. Thanks for that. And also, announcement. We also will be having a in-person retreat, I think, over Labor Day. That's we're going to be announcing that. The Hudson River Valley, an hour above New York, at Garrison Institute during Labor Day weekend. Uh, feel welcome. And uh, uh, assumedly, we should be putting up uh, signups for that. And it's always great fun, uh, great food. <clears throat> and really comfortable accommodations. So uh, nice also to be back and teach a retreat in person. We used to do that a lot, but with the pandemic, it hasn't been possible, but it looks like all systems are hopefully go. So tonight we're going to be talking about resilience, bouncing back, being adaptable uh, after especially negative interpersonal events and social setbacks and so on and so forth. So in the late 1950s and 60s, uh, American psychologists such as Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow uh, shifted the focus of psychology away from focusing exclusively on pathologies and symptom formation, i.e. what's gone wrong, to how people find fulfillment in life, how people achieve self-actualization in Maslow's terms. In other words, from what's going wrong to focusing on what's going right. And with Carl Rogers, he came up with what was called the fully functioning person. And Maslow came up with the self-actualizing individual, the hierarchy of needs. And they both had a, an array of overlapping ideas about what a uh, should be the goals of therapy and personal growth. And that became the focus of their work with clients. So they focused on how people cultivate deep and loving connections with others and how we ex exude gratitude and deep appreciation for mundane daily experiences without getting bored, really feeling a sense of immersion and interest in life, being exploratory and embracing new experiences, not sticking with the familiar, the confidence to make decisions without excessive self-doubt, and openness to new ideas, as well as creativity and self-expression, things, this whole array of goals. So the therapist was no longer uh, just focusing on all the negative experiences and feelings of the client. The goal was to help the client achieve these exalted uh, goals, 
achieving states of being really fulfilled in life, exploratory, open to new ideas, not uh, sticking with the known, being confident, being uh, able to cultivate really deep and meaningful relationships and so forth. But one of their focuses was on fostering resilience. And the second wave of uh, when positive psychology really gained a significant foothold with Martin Seligman and Jonathan Haidt and Sandra Lubomorsky, they really focused on what provides uh, baseline happiness and resilience to setbacks, the ability to bounce back from adverse experiences, especially uh, the social and personal rejections that occur in life. Now, as a social species, negative shifts in our standing with others, losing a job, losing a relationship, being rejected, or not feeling connected with a cohort of friends, diminishes serotonin, endorphins, and dopamine, and it leads to activation of the right hemisphere and withdrawal impulses. When we have positive interpersonal events, when we wind up in a new relationship, when we do something that other people hold steamable, or uh, when we achieve some kind of exalted role or uh, whatever, uh, positive shifts stimulate a region of the brain called the nucleus cummins, which forward projects dopamine, and we feel great, we feel happy, we feel excited. And so, uh, in other words, the brain is a social brain, and it's, it can be very difficult to bounce back from uh, rejections and losses and so forth. Focusing on resilience provides us with an alternative to the, the heavy slog that many forms of therapy can fall into if they simply focus on uh, our compulsions, our disorders, and so forth. So new forms of therapy from especially emotion-focused therapies and positive psychology, even CBT and DBT, really focus their attention on developing resilience to setbacks. Now, from childhood through adult life, the foundations of resilience really rests from what's called having a secure base. What's a secure base? A secure base is a sense that in our earliest years, there's a place of safety we can return to where people will provide us with the core needs to help us uh, pro regulate our emotions and feel safe in the world if something scary or unfortunate happens. So we all need to have a sense that there's this place we can go where we can relax, where we can be restored to a state of comfort. And um, so originally in life, this uh, comes from having parents or caregivers that can provide us with four key developmental needs. 
which are one, uh, parents who are available and who um, can provide a sense of protection. So uh, a feeling of connection to safety. Parents who can appreciate and acknowledge what's going on with us um, in you know, our emotions. So they can make us feel seen, seen in the eyes of another. Uh, so we need to feel safe. We need to feel seen. Uh, three, we need to have caregivers that can soothe us and reassure us when we're frightened, scared, sad, lonely, um, uh, uncomfortable. Successful parents and caregivers repair after they've said no and even gotten frustrated with their child. So the child isn't left with this lingering sense of there's something wrong with me. And the fourth core need <clears throat> and what's really vital and the need most likely not to be met is the need for appreciation and express delight. Parents who brighten up and smile and look, um, express some sense of joy when they, and delight in the child. The child, not just for what the child does, but just for the child's being, just for the fact that the child is there, the parents express joy and delight. Unfortunately, most parents are too busy these days without any community support without multi-general or social support. Um, parents have to do simply the basic job of parenting, keeping a roof over the child's head, food on the table, paying for education and clothing. And by the end of all that and their own lives and their own work, most parents don't have the resources and the energy to express delight in the child all the time. And so uh, what happens is, uh, well, there's many results, but as we'll see, one of the results is a deficit of self-worth. So absence of these qualities, the, the need to feel safe, seen, soothed, and appreciated and delighted in, when we have the, a lack of these qualities will feel insecure. Without security, the child will not be as exploratory and will not be able to bounce back from uh, scary or damaging events in school or as it explores its environment. When positive emotions are expressed regularly by parents to a child, eventually there's a really important developmental link that happens. Uh, the child links its sense of self with positive feelings. When the child sees itself in the mirror, it smiles and dances, it feels good. A secured child, when seeing its reflect, uh, reflection or hearing its name, starts to feel confident. There's a sense of being lovable and safe. And in these feelings are how we keep that safe, uh, secure base going as we spend more and more time away from our caregivers. 
These are durable associations stored in the emotional self-oriented processing center of the brain known as the right orbital frontal. And um, so that's a region of the brain that maps out emotionally how we stand in the world, whether we're safe, whether we expect other people to like us, what kind of people we turn to for safety and appreciation and so forth. So we've got these really durable models and these models are not so much ideas in language that we're consciously aware of. They're unconscious feelings that are evoked whenever we think about ourselves. We either have positive feelings and if we have positive feelings that are evoked, then when we have setbacks and social rejections, when we go, when a relationship ends, when we lose a job or when we don't get, uh, uh, when friends don't call us back, um, as an adult, we'll still have these positive feelings evoked by our sense of self. When we think about ourselves, it'll be with a sense of I'm lovable, people care, our bodies will feel good, we'll feel at ease. So in other words, if my sense of who I am evokes good feelings, I'll be able to endure some of the shit that life throws at me without my right hemisphere lighting up and having negative impact withdrawal impulses and depression and giving up and defeatism. It all starts with how do I feel when I think about myself? In the aftermath of losses and setbacks and disappointments and so forth, we tend to withdraw for a moment our investment in the world and then what comes to the rescue is a felt sense of worthiness and lovability and ease and safety, which protects us or cushions that blow. On the other hand, if I grew up with unreliable, inattentive caregivers who are at times incapable of either being uh, soothing or expressing delight, in adult life, after rejections, after losses, after disappointing interpersonal encounters, there won't be positive feelings to soften the blow. If I haven't developed positive feelings in when my sense of self is evoked by experiences in life, I'll sense there's something fundamentally missing. I'll feel empty. I won't be able to pin down what it is, but I'll feel the need over and over and over again to prove myself. I won't innately feel a sense of I matter, that I'm good enough. When people don't have that, haven't had that secure base and developmental link between our sense of who we are and positive feelings in our body, we will strive to please others all the time. We'll constantly try to prove our worthiness. We'll become vulnerable to perfectionism and imposter syndrome. We'll always feel like a fraud at, in certain situations at work. 
our efforts won't be as effective uh, because no matter how much we prove ourselves, no matter how much we do, no matter how much we please others, there's not this fundamental uh, foundation of positive affects, feelings in our body evoked by our sense of self, our sense of self being the image we hold of ourselves, our name, the way other when other people look at us, it won't be against a backdrop of good feelings. Now, classically, a lot of contemporary um, and uh, pop psychology tries to address these deficits in self-esteem or self-worth through things like positive self-talk, acts of service, doing as much as we can uh, of service for others, or creative achievements, creative self-expression. But the problem is, is that the fundamental lack of resilience always stems from this deficit of having made this really core developmental link between our sense of self and positive feelings. There's been so much research in this, by the way, at the Hampstead Clinic with Peter Finagi and uh, Alan Shore's work and all that, uh, neuro, developmental neurobiology and all that. So uh, positive acts, positive self-talk, you know, saying really nice things to ourselves doesn't reach the region of the brain that holds these core associations. Because these core associations were developed before we acquired language, before any achievements in life. They were framed by those early moments in childhood when we went to our parents and we really looked at how they reflected back on us, our, just ourselves. And if our parents didn't have the time, energy, or resources to regularly present us with delight and appreciation and joy just at our being, then we won't make this deep link between, like for, in my case, Josh and feeling good. Um, so we have to find a way if we want to build up resilience, not just to try to do as much as we can to leave a positive reputation with others or telling ourselves how, you know, lovable we are. All of that will not lead to lasting change. It will alleviate uh, feelings of, of sadness or unworthiness for a little while, but it won't have lasting results. What has lasting results is to find a way to address these unconscious felt, felt associations between my sense of self and how I feel in my body when my sense of self is evoked. And if you'd like to learn more about this, there's, again, Fanagi at the Hampstead Clinic, Clinic, and there's Dan Brown at Harvard, and um, uh, Dan Siegel, and so forth. So 
<clears throat> it's hard to undo a damaged sense of self. And it's even harder due to what's called negativity bias. The brain tends to give much greater neural weight to negative interpersonal experiences than to the positive ones. It takes only a half second for a negative interpersonal event to leave a lasting synaptic connection through uh, LTP, lasting long-term potentiation. It takes about 15 seconds or 20 seconds of holding an image of a positive experience for it to form a memory. Most people don't take 15 to 20 seconds to linger on the praise we get, the signs of gratitude we experience, the positive regard. Franz Alexander, a great, very famous psychology, psychologist from the 1940s, said that healing involves what he called the corrective emotional experience. <clears throat> Rather than any insight a therapist provides, the therapist week in and week out, week in and week out, over and over and over again, expresses empathy and appreciation. And over time, as the, the client lingers on that, savors that experience, they begin to heal and build up a sense of self-worth. What does the Buddha say about all this? So in the Dharma, there's this core teaching called the Paticca Samuppada, and it presents the Buddha's insights into how stress and suffering develop in life. And it's presented as a list of causes or developmental experiences across the lifespan. And in his theory of psychological development, the Buddha teaches that one of the first developments in life is what he calls nama rupa, and that means essentially our, the sense of self by mind in one's body. It's the equivalent of these early attachment experiences I, I mentioned earlier between the child and the parent and the development of these internal working durable models. So <clears throat> the Buddha says, in the teaching, what, my friends, is nama rupa? Nama are the core feelings, perceptions, intentions that create our sense of identity, our, our sense of who we are. So from this formation, this early basic foundation of who I am, there arises patterns, according to the Buddha, where we interact with the world, it's known as contact, we develop feelings and uh, Vedana, and then we develop craving, which is Tanha. And so all of our experience is patterned by these deeply held formations of identity, the Nama Rupa. In mindfulness practice, we observe how our experiences with others and our sense of identity is far more fluid than this, these deeply held identity beliefs are aware of. But most importantly, what the Dharma provides us with 
is an act of savoring or processes of savoring where we really embed in us positive images of uh, that change our sense of self and the feelings that our sense of self evoke. Now, savoring involves holding images in one's mind. It's not about repeating affirmations like I'm lovable, I'm good, people like me or any of that. It's not about running around trying to accomplish as much as we can in life to prove our worthiness. It's about savoring images associated with positive interactions, positive, uh, positive things we've already done so we can begin over time to change the way we feel. And in so doing, we can then link these positive feelings with our sense of self. So in the practice, what we do is we visualize positive uh, uh, actions we've taken. And the Buddha lists in the recollections at least four uh, examples. One is kaganusati. We bring to mind acts of generosity and kindness. There's silanusati. We bring to mind our acts of virtue, meaning all the ways we refrain from harming others and try to coexist with others in a non-harmful way. Kalyanamita, we savor our friendships. And Santinusati, we savor the places and situations in life that provide us with a sense of peace and safety. So in these practices, we bring to mind any of these experiences, times we were generous and kind, times we were virtuous and didn't cause harm to others, people that care about us, or places where we feel safe. We conjure these images, we hold them in our mind, we relax our body, and we might even activate our vagal nerve by putting a hand on our heart center, or on our forehead, or on the back of our neck. And then over time, once a really strong state of ease and confidence is evoked in the body, then we change the image in our mind to a self-representation, an image of ourself, either as we are today or as we are in childhood. Now, all this might sound very difficult to follow and make sense of, but I'm going to lead this practice in our meditation. It's a meditation that uh, is not only very ancient, but also very modern, and that Dan Brown at Harvard um, has so kind of codified it into a Buddhist practice to work on one's sense of self-worth. And one of the key attributes of all this is when we change our sense of self-worth, then we become far more durable and resistant and resilient to all of the positive and negative events that happen in life. When we have a strong sense of positive feelings evoked by our sense of self, we are not vulnerable to the ups and downs of lived experience as much as we were previously. 
So all of that's a lot of ideas, but we're actually going to put into practice this meditation and practice that uh, allows us to address these and adjust these early formed unconscious associations that create our sense of self-worth. So I hope that something about this talk was of interest. And what we're going to do now is we're actually going to slow down, relax, and we're going to practice. And so find a really super comfortable place to sit. If you prefer to lie down, that's fine. And uh, I'm going to close my eyes. Oh, and I'm going to just lift and rotate back my shoulders. Open up my chest. And bringing my attention into my body and lowering my attention so that it doesn't feel like consciousness is simply sitting behind my eyes and between my ears, but lowering attention so it's almost like in a way, taking an elevator down into the body. See if you can slowly begin to sense that you're closer to the sensations of breathing, especially the movement of expansion in the chest. See how close you can get to the sensations of the belly expanding with the in-breath and subsiding with the exhalation. And try to survey now around the body, bringing your attention like a spotlight through any areas of your body that feel needlessly 
contracted or tense. Sometimes I'll sit and then after a few minutes, I'll note that my shoulders are either needlessly pulled up towards my ears or are contracting forward in front of my chest. And so I have to, again, drop my shoulders, pull them back, open up the chest. Sometimes the, the forehead muscles might be furrowed and I'll release and smooth them. Or the micro muscles around the eyes might feel heavy. And so I'll bring attention to the eyes just floating in two warm pools. Allowing them to settle. If there's anything about my legs that feel uncomfortable, I'll shift their position. Paired muscle relaxation, tension and relaxation can help. So if there's any area of your body that feels a little uh, either numb or not fully comfortable, you can first clench and then slowly release, see if that helps. So given that the self-worth practice or self-esteem practice will involve imagery, it's good in the first part of the meditation, if you can, to practice working with some simple images in the mind. If you can visualize a color, or shape, a circle, a square, a triangle. If it's very difficult to hold an image from scratch, see one old nimitta practice in Buddhism is to open your eyes and spot something in the room and then when you close your eyes, see if you can recreate that object with your eyes closed. Then open your eyes, see the object again, and then close your eyes and see if you can create that object. Or you can simply try to remember something pleasant. Hold it in mind. 
So for this practice, just try to breathe really comfortably and just practice holding a very simple image in your mind, an image not associated with anything stressful. And again, if you want to practice resting your gaze on something soothing in your environment with your eyes open, and then closing your eyes and creating that image in your mind. And we'll just sit here quietly, breathing slowly, keeping our bodies relaxed, and simply practice holding a very simple image in mind.
So at this time, we can move on to the practice of addressing one's core sense of self and the feelings it evokes. So starting out with Santinas Nusati, just bring to mind a place where you feel really safe, a place that's available that you can go to, a place that no matter what happens in life presents a feeling of being reconnected either with nature or just away from the stresses and responsibilities of daily life. It can be as simple as a, a park, a trail, a, a walk, a Or it could be a coffee shop where you feel really relaxed and peaceful or a, a favorite couch, something that provides a sense of, a place that provides a sense of grounding and security, Buddha called places that evoke peace, santi nusati. We can't visualize it, just simply repeat the name of the place. Just the name, slowly. If you'd like, you can put a hand on your heart center. We're just trying to evoke a state of security, now moving to the heart of the practice, starting with Kalyanamita, bring to mind any wise friend or person in your life. anyone associated with attentiveness or empathy or appreciation. If you can't visualize them, just repeat their name and try to 
with one, if you keep your hand on your heart center, also try to see if without any force or effort, you can soften your facial expression. Allow a unforced smile if that's available, only if that's available. Don't try to force anything. And now, Kaganusati, bring to mind some act of generosity or kindness you've offered someone. If nothing comes to mind, an act of generosity and kindness you could do for someone you care about. Any act of kindness that's been shown you, that you've shown, or that you could express to another. Holding this image and trying to see if you can use it to evoke a feeling of worthiness or confidence in your body. Any action you've done, any action you could do that's esteemable, you could hold in your mind an image of the person you'd like to help or show up for and visualizing them expressing gratitude to you. Or simply visualize the action itself that you you've taken and finally sila nusati bring to mind all of the adaptive behaviors and actions you undertake so as not to cause harm or suffering from it for anyone. Buddha calls sila, virtue. Even the smallest gestures of care 
attentiveness, consideration, that have become part of your daily routines even, but are part of living a life that doesn't cause needless harm to others. Taking a full breath in and imagine the spreading ease and comfort and warmth into your heart center. And then as you breathe out slowly, releasing any stress and tightness. And when you get to a point where you feel safe, easeful, comfortable, secure. Lastly, bring to mind an image of yourself, either as you might look today, or expressing this delight to your inner child, an image of the way you would have looked around the age of five or six. And just linking these positive feelings with your sense of self, your self-representation. Just savoring these good feelings and letting them be linked with any representation of yourself. You could just whisper your name in your mind. So at this point, taking your time, letting go of the images, but seeing if you can bring the good feeling with you as you very slowly begin to open your eyes and reorient to the room around you.